BKA movie fans, we're back with another episode of Film Frontier. I'm Felicity. And I'm Clarence. And today we have a uh, fun one for you. It's uh, One-Eyed Jacks. We'll get into it later, but I think there's a little bit of disagreement among the Film Frontier staff uh, <laughs> yes, about yes. this movie. Yeah, this is the one and only film directed by uh, screen legend Marlon Brando. All right, this is a 1961 film. Uh, it's about a couple of outlaws, Rio, played by Marlon Brando, and Dad Longworth, played by Carl Malden. Uh, they rob a bank in Mexico. The Mexican police are after them. They're on the run. They get surrounded in the desert. Uh, they agree that uh, Dad should go off and get fresh mounts for them. So Longworth goes to get them fresh horses. But as he uh, does that, he decides uh, better of it and decides to keep the money and just ride away and leave Rio to uh, handle the Mexican police. So Rio uh, goes off to, to prison. Five years he's there. He finally escapes, and he sets out to seek revenge on Longworth. He tracks him down now in Monterey, California, where dads become the sheriff. And from there, he begins to enact his revenge. Might be a one-eyed jack around here, Dad. But I seen the other side of your face. I am gonna get a trial, ain't I, Dad? Sure, kid. You'll get a fair trial. And then I'm gonna hang you personally. Um, so this is one of those films that its behind-the-scenes reputation is maybe as famous as the movie or mm -hmm. um, as interesting in the movie, at very least. Um, it's like a Heaven's Gate or Apocalypse Now. Yeah. One of these runaway Hollywood productions that goes over budget, over schedule, all that. Weird <laughs> that Marlon Brando would be like a personality and a difficult <laughs> uh, person I know. to deal with. Who would have thought? This, this begins back in 1955. Brando is like at the height of his powers. He's done Streetcar Named Desire, uh, The Wild One. He's just won the Oscar for On the Waterfront. He's like the, mo the biggest star in Hollywood. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. During this time, all the big stars are setting up their own production companies and making deals with the studios. And Brando is no exception. So he forms Penna Baker, named after his mom's main name in 1955. Um, they get a three-picture deal with Paramount. So they have the deal with Paramount, and Brando's idea is to make, like, worthwhile movies that deal with topics of the time and, you know, issue pictures. But to get the company off the right, on the right foot, they decide to make a Western first, because mm -hmm. that's pretty much that's guaranteed popular. box office yeah. gold. So they'll make a lot of money with a Western. Then we can then... make serious art films. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't turn out that way. But he wanted to make a Western that avoided the usual cliches, mm -hmm. not the typical black and white, good guy, bad guy. Yeah. And they started looking for projects to do. They first optioned a book called To Tame a Land by Louis L'Amour, mm -hmm. who's the famed Western writer. Mm -hmm. They work on the screenplay for that for a while. Brando's unsure of it. It sort of falls by the wayside. They option another script called Yellow Leg. They work on that for a little while. Again, falls by the wayside. Interestingly, um, Yellow Leg would later become uh, Sam Pe Peckinpah's first film as director oh. under the title uh, The Deadly Companions. So, I didn't know that. Yeah, it eventually was filmed. So they're optioning these things. Brando's not sure if he wants to write a screenplay himself, what they want to do. And this all started in 1955 in and 55. the movie came out. Uh, it hits theaters in 1961. Okay. So it's a long gestation. But it takes a long time to make feature it's films. It's true. It's true. They got to figure out what they're doing. Yeah. They're just setting up the company. Yeah. Around the same time, uh, separately, Frank P. Rosenberg, who's a TV movie producer, mm. options a novel called The Authentic Death of Hendry Jones by Charles Nieder. And it's basically the story of Billy the Kid transposed from New Mexico to Monterey, California. Rosenberg hires a young Rod Serling to write the screenplay, mm. to write a treatment. Mm -hmm. And this is right, right before he creates The Twilight Zone. Mm -hmm. But Rosenberg doesn't like what, what Serling gives him. So Rosenberg is producing a pilot for a TV Western at the time. So he goes to a writer he knows to take a cry at a young writer named Sam Peckinpah. Mm. So Peckinpah sits down and adapts the novel. Mm -hmm. Rosenberg likes it. They send it to Brando. Brando loves it. They strike a deal. They're going to make the movie. This will be the Western that Brando's going to mm -hmm. make. 
Brando and Peckinpah get together. They start revising the script, putting it together. You know, uh, everything's going great. Mm -hmm. Until he goes to a screening of The Killing and Paths of Glory, Mm -hmm. both directed by Stanley Kubrick, Mm -hmm. who, of course, would later go on to fame and fortune. Heard of him. Yes. Uh, He meets Kubrick. They hit it off. Everything's great. Kubrick's going to direct the Mm -hmm. movie. Kubrick coming in decides he wants his own writer to come in. Mm. So Peckinpah is unceremoniously fired. Yeah. Kubrick brings in Calder Willingham, who had written uh, Paths of Glory. And so they start working on the script. So Brando, Kubrick, and Willingham get together at Brando's house. And for eight months, they work on the script. And they're rehashing new ideas. And after Peckinpah left, the, the story becomes less and less like the source novel. Mm. I've read the book... It's completely different than yeah. the movie. There's a couple of character names that are same, basically. With the book being the Billy the Kid story, which the movie is not. Right. Interestingly, there are a lot of segments from Peckinpah's script that show up in mm. his 1973 film, Pat Garrett and Billy the oh, Kid. okay. Yeah. The scenes where Billy's in jail. Uh, I don't know if you remember hmm. early in the movie. Um, and you can find Peckinpah's draft online his of the, of the novel. It's faithful to the novel, so if you want to check that out. So they work they work on the script at Brando's house. And supposedly Brando had a gong set up. Uh-huh. <laughs> and whenever things got too heated between the three of them, he would bang the oh gong and they would all like kind of take a breath and and start working again. What a drama queen. Yeah. <laughs> so up until this point, Marlon had no uh dreams of directing at well, he had mentioned in an interview with Truman Capote mm-hmm. while he was making the film Sayonara mm-hmm. that he might direct it. And a lot of people after the fact kind of thought, people who were associated with him kind of thought he always intended to direct yeah. it. Yeah. But he had not officially announced that mm-hmm. at this point. Meanwhile, Brando offers the part of Dad Longworth to Carl Malden, mm-hmm. puts him on the payroll right away, but doesn't tell Kubrick this. Yeah. <laughs> Kubrick, Why would you need yeah, to? No. <laughs> so Malden's just making money while they're writing the script. Sweet. Yeah, it's a pretty good deal. And they, of course, had made Streetcar and On the Waterfront right. together, so they had a relationship. And they're both kind of from the same Yeah, the same background. Acting. Yeah, the Ilya Kazan yeah, and yeah. all that stuff. Right. Yeah, the New York theater. Yeah. Kubrick, incidentally, had wanted Stan, uh, Spencer Tracy to play Dad Longworth. Oh. Yeah. Which I'm not... I don't know how that would have been it, it, Spencer at that age. Well, I don't feel great about Carl Malden being in this True. movie. We'll get to that. And yeah. I... <laughs> I think I feel less great about Spencer, about Spencer being in the movie. You can almost see, I guess, maybe the idea of Spencer being the old generation Hollywood with Brando, mm-hmm. this new generation. Maybe that's what Kubrick was yeah. thinking or something. I feel I'm like not... that this isn't the movie to take that on, though. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting idea, but... Yeah. Yeah. So they work for eight months on the script. Kubrick and Brando just can't see eye to eye on it. Brando keeps changing his mind about things and... Kubrick, they eventually just have it out and Kubrick leaves the project. And Kubrick later said he he thought Brando kind of always intended to direct it as well and, and never really expected to keep him around. And then shortly after that, Brando fires Calder Willingham, the writer, and Frank Rosenberg brings in Guy Trosper to finish the film. Hmm. And Trosper had written Jailhouse Rock, um, Devil's Doorway for Anthony Mann. He would go on to write uh, The Birdman of Alcatraz and The Spy Who Came In From the Cold. Hmm. It's kind of a varied career yeah yeah (laughs) good for him (laughs) so while they're working on the script brando has a guy coaching him on his fast draw yeah he has wranglers bringing giant horse trailers up to his house full of horses so brando can expect inspect them and Mm -hmm. see which one he wants to ride in Mm -hmm. the movie and just expenses are piling up and And they don't even really have a script at this point no no yeah no (laughs) (laughs) what a silly Um, question felicity (laughs) and at this point the movie is between two titles either going to call it guns up Mm-hmm. Or One-Eyed Jacks, which they came up with while playing poker. So, I hate Guns Up. <laughs> Guns Up is really bad. <laughs> if anything, it sounds like a, a wacky comedy parody. It does. It sounds silly. Yeah. yeah. It's, I don't, Guns I'm not Up, sure. Buns Up. I don't know. <laughs> That'd be a good title. Yeah. <laughs> so Kubrick's out, and then finally it's decided, Paramount agrees, Brando can direct the movie. And they surround him with their top talent. They give him, like, their best AD that they have. Yeah. Uh, they give him Charles Lang Jr. as director of photography, who's, like, a, a legend and been around since the silence. I wonder how hard of a sell it was for Brando to direct. Because I know today the stars have a hard time sometimes getting their first directing job just because they're not trusted in that right. seat. Right. But they do have a lot of cachet when they're in charge of Hollywood. Right. 
I think Paramount was so excited about having Brando in the fold, mm-hmm. and, and they could promote that he was directing it. So yeah. I think they were okay with and it. And would this be the first Western he'd ever been in? Well, he was in Viva Zapata, which yeah. is sort right. of a Western, but right, not right, right. quite. But yeah. Um, but yeah, really, yeah, his first real Western. Yeah. They get ready for Brando to direct. He's got a great cast with him. Carl Malden is in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> even though you're not crazy about him. They get Ben Johnson. Slim Pickens for major roles. To clarify, I like a Carl Malden, <laughs> just not in this film. Not in this movie, sorry. Sorry. Didn't Proceed. mean to put words in your mouth. <laughs> uh, they have Katie Hurado in it. Newcomer uh, Pina uh, Payaser to play Luisa, who's Carl Malden's stepdaughter in the film. And she was found, um, they did a search, they went to Mexico City, saw like 60 actresses and found her. This was her first film, although it would end up being her second film released. But she was, you know, newcomer, mm-hmm. uh, didn't speak English well. And so they had a lot of work to do with her in the film. Yeah. But otherwise, a good cast. Timothy Carey's in it, Elisha yeah. Cook Jr. A lot of good supporting actors. Mm-hmm. They're going to shoot around Big Sur and Monterey, California, which is, you know, a, an unusual location yeah. for a Western and, and adds a lot of great scenery to the movie. They start shooting at the end of 1958, like in December 1958, without a finished script, <laughs> naturally. <laughs> And we'll just improvise a western, sure, you guys. Why not? <laughs> so they get there after the first day of shooting. They're already five days behind schedule. Oh my gosh! Yeah. <laughs> I'm already stressed out. Brando was just—he he couldn't make a decision. He tried everything. Um, a quote from Brando on his directing: He said, "I tried to figure out what to what to do as I went along. Uh, some scenes I shot over and over again from different angles with different dialogue and action because I didn't know what I was doing." I was making things up by the moment, not sure where the story was going. I also did a lot of stalling for time, trying to work the story out in my mind, while hoping to make the cast think I knew what I was doing. That sounds like the old thing of, we'll find it in editing. We'll find it in post. (laughs) In which case, maybe you should give the editor a director's credit. Right, yeah. Controversial. (laughs) You're so, uh, yeah, (laughs) so out there. So they're rewriting on set. Trosper is there with Brando rewriting. Uh, Brando's encouraging... The cast to improvise. They're basing rewrites on that. At least this process allows the screenwriter to be on the set, which That's rarely true. happens. That is true. Way. Yeah. That's a good way for the, the screenwriter to keep a hand in what's going on. Although maybe it's a nightmare for the screenwriter as well. <laughs> right. I don't know. Maybe he'd want to be off or maybe it's better. Maybe he just keeps getting paid. So yeah, it's nice. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But he's got to work though. Yeah. And Brando was very uh, collaborative. He he solicited and took ideas from cast and crew alike. He was not, you know, hmm. he didn't have an ego about that. Um, about that yes <laughs> but like i said uh, pina Payasair, mm-hmm. very inexperienced so he spent a lot of time with her crafting her performance and and making sure that mm. was what he wanted i'm guessing you don't think he was very successful <laughs> well i just when you the way you say it, it makes me think they spent a lot of time oh. like in the trailer well, or I, I think he tried but it didn't quite work out mm. mm-hmm. <clears throat> i hear what you're saying <laughs> okay so they're yeah they're rewriting on the set. Uh, ben Johnson actually contributed a lot of the dialogue. Oh. Um, Brando like worked with him quite a bit because he knew Ben Johnson to be an authentic cowboy type, sure, yeah. you know, real the real deal. And I think he he uh, solicited information and he in fact uh, based his performance a lot on Ben Johnson. He would get him into conversations just to study him so he could follow his mannerisms and and you know how he spoke and everything. I think that's wise. Yeah, absolutely. I mean. You can't get much more authentic than right. that. Right. And someone who knows both the cowboy life and what it means to portray that on film. I mean, you could just bring some Reuben off the... St- yes. Not off the street. Off the ranch. <laughs> right. But having, I think, Ben Johnson there who understands how to communicate in both worlds is right. a valuable Yeah, Ben Johnson's tool. a veteran at this right. point. You know, having worked with Ford and, yeah. and being Ben and Shane and everything. So... They're shooting everything, rewriting dialogue, doing all you know all this over and over. And one of the more famous examples of Brando's excess on the set and the delays that they caused was the scene uh, late in the film after he's had his hand injured and he's you know brooding about mm-hmm. the situation. He's sitting up on the cliffs and the ocean is in the background and the waves are supposed to be crashing in all you know with turmoil and mm-hmm. just you know violent. And when they got there to shoot that morning, it was completely calm. Mm. So Brando decides, let's just wait. We'll wait till the waves get violent. And they waited like three, four hours. Uh-huh. Finally comes. They, they shoot the scene. It looks great. It's a great scene. Mm-hmm. But the press happened to be there that day. Mm-hmm. So there's reports of this going on. You know, it's just like, it, it, and they're already so far behind schedule. Yeah. The cast, however, loved his directing. Oh. 
They were so pleased with it. And Malden thought he was a genius. Malden thought he would have been one of the great directors. Yeah. He's an actor's director. Yeah, totally. And he has a lot of great people supporting him technically. Yes, yeah. And Malden's on the payroll for months and months. True. (laughs) Uh, Slim Pickens had said that he learned more about acting on One-Eyed Jacks than he did in his entire career up to that point. Uh, Ben Johnson said, uh, Brando is a big star, probably the biggest, but you always feel like he's trying to make you look just as good as him, maybe better than him. So that's, 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 I mean, that's a sign of a great actor too, is yes. making the scene partner look good. Yes. Yeah. He didn't have an ego about that. So yeah. that's good. Hmm. So, you know, they're just, there's reports getting out to the Hollywood press about what's going on. They're taking forever. Paramount sent the studio chief out to put a stop to it and fire Brando. Brando charmed him somehow and they kept going. Yeah. He got, I don't know how he did it, but he got, got them to let him continue. And while they were shooting, like Brando would stress eat, so they kept having oh. to make new costumes for him. Oh. <laughs> I know. <laughs> this would be a later problem for him, yeah. I think. Yeah. It's understandable. I mean, yeah. he's never directed. It's he's, a stressful job to begin yes. with. Yes. And he's got this huge project, yeah. uh, and he's acting in it as well. So he's doing a lot. You know? We've all experienced a degree of this. Yes, yes. <laughs> Another famous thing that happened on the set, there was a scene where he was supposed to be drunk. Mm-hmm. And so he thought the best way to play that would be to get drunk. Obviously. So he gets to set. It's like at the end of the day, he's too drunk to act or direct. <laughs> so they just have to scrap the scene. Mm-hmm. They do it again. He gets too drunk again, yeah. and they have to scrap the scene. And incidentally, the scene never made it in the movie. They finally got it, but the scene was cut. Huh. Yeah. There was a sequence um, in the fishing village near mm-hmm. the end where he falls for a Chinese woman mm. that was completely excised from the film. And that's the only sequence that was completely removed from the hmm. film. And, and originally the fishing village was meant to be a Mexican village. And he showed up on set like the day before they were supposed to shoot there and said, oh, I think it should be a Chinese village. So the crew had to scramble all wow. night to redress the set. And get extras. and Get extras, yeah. Wow. So, yeah. So more delays. Mm-hmm. So once they finish shooting in the Monterey area... They're going to Death Valley to shoot the scenes um, of the, the Rurales, the Mexican police, pursuing Dad and, and Brando. Um, and they're going to shoot this at Zabriskie Point in mm-hmm. Death Valley. The schedule originally had it planned that they would shoot in the winter, but because of delays, it's now summer. <laughs> so temperatures are mm-hmm. skyrocketing. Everyone's miserable. Yeah. Um, the scene where they're up on the hill in the... The Rurales are pursuing them in the desert, and the sandstorm mm-hmm. blows in. This mm-hmm. was a real sandstorm, and Brando said, let's film in it. And I, it looks great. Yeah. It's amazing. Like, they film it, but the next day, the sandstorm was gone, mm-hmm. so they had to bring in all these wind machines to recreate, you know, to finish the scene. But it's a great sequence. I, I think it's really atmospheric. Mm-hmm. They completed principal photography in June of 1959. The filming took uh, six months instead of the 60 days that was originally scheduled. <laughs> Ben Johnson said, um, I was on that picture for about six months, which was a pretty good run. I almost retired off of One-Eyed Jacks. <laughs> yeah. And Malden must have cleaned up on this movie. Yeah. Like, it, getting paid, like, way back in pre-production. Mm-hmm. And in the three movies that we did, we had a hell of a good time. And when we did One-Eyed Jacks, I was a very proud actor when he called me and said, Carl, I'm going to produce and direct a movie. I've got a part for you. I haven't read it. And I said, I'll do it. Anything at all. And when it was over, he came to the house, and he looked around. He said, Carl, is this the house that Jack built? I said, you're right, it is, because it ran over so long. Six months, it was supposed to run two months. Six months it ran. And that's what killed him as a director. But he was as good a director as he was an actor, because nobody could stop him. Nobody could move him. If he wanted to do the scene, we're going to sit here all day and do the scene. That's Marlon. They shot a million feet of film, which is about six times more than the average movie. They go into post-production. Brando had his next acting gig lined up, which was the fugitive kind for Sidney Lumet. So literally, they finish on a Friday. He's got to be in New York on Monday to start filming the fugitive kind. So he's filming all week in New York, flies back to L.A. on the weekend to edit. They had so much footage that... And so many takes and angles and everything that it was just overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it just took sure. forever. Yeah. In 1960, January 1960, Paramount promoted the film as one of their big releases of the year. The movie would not come out until March 1961. So that's like they had how a lot they promote work. movies now. Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> but I think they intended for it to right. be out. Yeah. Yeah. In 1960. Mm. There was allegedly a five-hour cut, maybe even an eight-hour cut. I mean, I'm sure there was with all that footage. Yeah. But that's, you know, just a work cut, sure. a work print, not a fine cut. These imaginary cuts exist of every movie. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Brando gets it down to two hours and 45 minutes. He wants, and he would like Paramount to release that version. He still, he thinks that that cut still kind of compromises his vision and the subtlety and the nuance that he had originally intended. Mm -hmm. But he's got it down to that. And it's not like they have a real <laughs> script that they can compare it to. It's not like they have right. a 90-page script right, to keep right. it tight. And... <laughs> they have an improvised script. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure there's pages everywhere, sure. but, you know. And just tons of script supervisor notes. Yes, and... yes. I mean, it must have been a Who nightmare knows? to go yeah. through. Like, the assistant editors must have had a hell of a time. <sighs> so Paramount, after seeing that cut, they decide they want to make a small change, which is actually kind of a major change. In the scene where Rio and Dad meet for the first time after Rio's escape from prison at, at Dad's house in Monterey, as it was originally scripted and filmed, Dad actually confesses to Rio that he did leave him there and that he did run off with the money. And then he's like, if you want to have it out, let's do it. Mm -hmm. The studio didn't like that. They thought it would make Dad a more clear-cut villain if they filmed it as it is in the movie now, where he lies to Rio and says, oh, no, I tried to go back but couldn't. Yeah. I, uh, I guess you wondered why I never showed with the horses. Yeah, I thought about it. Uh, you know, knowing how you was in them days, I'd beg you for getting drunk and falling down in some chiquita and losing track of time. <laughs> you know, I didn't forget, kid. But there was nothing I could do. When I got to that little rancho, there were no horses. Old Mexican couldn't talk American, and when I finally figured out his lingo, he was saying that he had sold the horses a couple of weeks before. The old paint horse I was riding was pretty done in, but I headed straight for you. When I got to the canyon, I see rurales all over the place. Well, I, I hightailed it out of there and got as far as La Quinta before the horse caved in. I hid out in a cantina. I gave the bartender some gold to keep his mouth shut. Well, there wasn't too much of that, as I recollect it. It was enough to get me over the border and all the way here. Here to Monterey. I figured I'd keep my nose clean until the... until that, um, fracas down in Mexico was forgotten. Well, I kept myself clean. Clean enough to be elected sheriff. Knowing me the way I used to be, I, I couldn't blame you for not believing. But if you're looking now to be satisfied for what I did, I'd be sorry for it, kid. But if that's what you want, just let me know how and where you want the play. I'll stand up to you. You get way ahead of yourself, Dan. No need for all that, because <clears throat> nothing happened to me. I just fooled around them dog faces till it got dark, and I went down and I stole the captain's horse. They weren't about to find me, neither. And then after that, it was just, you know, rosemary and sweet whiskey and just whooping and yelling. That is a big change. Yeah, that's a major change. Brando didn't want, you know, the black mm -hmm. and white kind of good yeah. guy, bad guy. In his original version, Dad tells the truth through the entire movie. Right. It's Brando that lies in that scene. He says, oh, no, I didn't get, you know, I just escaped. Right. And, and My gut tells me that I like the studio's decision, yeah. but not because it makes Malden a villain, because it adds the conflict between the characters. Yeah. That there's this unspoken thing that no one is talking about. True. That's that a good point. That is this betrayal between them that neither wants to really bring up or fess up to. Yeah, yeah. But I see, I see the the thing about one character is lying throughout the entire movie and one character is telling the truth. Right, yet. right. One's our hero and one's our villain. Right. It is. Yeah. It's never bothered me that they both lie mm -mm. to each other because it just seemed like that's who they are. Yeah. But I just learned that not too long ago about hmm. the the change, and that that was really surprising to me. That that's it would how affect we the whole movie. Yeah, it does. It yeah. changes the whole movie. So it's it's very subtly put in. Um, this new scene, mm -hmm. um, and it's, you know, you can't really tell. Yeah. 
I like that scene, as I recall. Yeah, it's a good scene. Um, the way it's shot with him on the porch. Yeah, behind with the, on the porch. With behind and, the slats of the yeah. fence, which so it looks like he's in jail. He's in jail. Well. Yeah, right. yeah. It's yeah. a really well done scene. You sure that's the straight of it, kid? Well, you know me, Dad. If I didn't feel right about it, we'd been out there splattering each other all over that front yard. I admit, I was hot about it for a time, but that's five years ago. Man can't stay angry for five years. Can he? They're still editing. Finally, it comes to a head that Brando's off the picture. Paramount wants him out. Mm. Brando leaves without a fight. Mm -hmm. A lot of people thought he was relieved to be off of it and not have to deal with it anymore, yeah. which I can imagine, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so You can get too attached. Yeah, exactly. So they Paramount previews the picture. It doesn't go well. They do some more editing, cut another 23 minutes out of it, and then you get the current cut mm -hmm. from that. One other change they made after the preview. Originally in the ending, as Rio and Luisa are riding away, Dad's dying shot hits Louisa in the back and kills her. Mm. Paramount hated that. Yeah. And I obviously must have not tested well. Right. So they brought back Brando and Payasera to film the new ending where she lives. And, mm -hmm. and that, that new ending was shot in October 1960. Mm -hmm. The movie comes out in March 61. Mm. The movie got mixed reviews, uh, did okay at the box office, but because of the cost overruns, it couldn't make a profit. Yeah. Brando was nominated for a DGA award. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't win, but... Uh, Something. Yeah. The original budget was just under $2 million. Mm -hmm. It ended up being $6 million. So three times yeah. uh, its original budget. is not mm -hmm. great. And I think it made like $4.5 million at the box mm -hmm. office or something. So it didn't even make up for it. Yeah. Yeah. This was Paramount's last feature uh, released in their format, their widescreen format, Vista Vision, mm -hmm. which was a format where you the 35mm film went through the gate horizontally rather than vertically which allowed for a finer grain and a better picture. But this was the last film. Uh, I guess cheaper formats made it mm. obsolete. Vista Vision was introduced by Paramount. I think a film called White Christmas and Strategic Air Command, Anthony Mann's picture. These were um, uh, extraordinary, um, um, crystal clear uh, definition in these frames uh, with the Vista Vision system, which for those of you who don't know, instead of the film going vertically through the camera, it was horizontal. And instead of it being four perforations per frame, it was eight. So the image was double. One thing was that Paramount, no matter the, the type of film uh, in the 50s into the early 60s, no matter what kind of film it was, whether it was an A film or a B film at that time, uh, a small Western in black and white or whatever, it had to be shot in VistaVision. So everything from Paramount from 1953 to 61 is Vista Um It was then lent out to uh, Warner Brothers and, uh, no, actually, yeah, Warner Brothers, I think, for The Searchers and um, MGM, I think North by Northwest, I may be wrong, North by Northwest. Uh, Vertigo, you know, was, it was uh, uh, of course, a Paramount picture. But in any event, this was an extraordinary process, and one of the great things about this process was to see it projected in Vista Vision. I guess maybe the, I don't know, maybe... Uh, IMAX has a quality uh, like that now. Um, but to uh, walk into a theater on 48th Street or whatever at that time and uh, see this image on the wall, basically, it was like the side of a building. It was extraordinarily, uh, was not just wide, but it was also extremely high. Um, and so VistaVision was a very special process. And the, the film eventually was believed to fall into the public domain. You could find DVDs of it in dollar bins everywhere. Just terrible. Mm -hmm. Even on YouTube now, you look it up, you'll find mm -hmm. terrible, poor quality prints. And part of it was no one really knew who owned the rights. Mm -hmm. uh, Paramount had released a Laserdisc in the 90s, but it turned out Paramount actually didn't own the rights to the film anymore. Universal did. Huh. Yeah, and that's because Brando, to offset costs to his company, mm -hmm. made a deal where he would do like five or six pictures for them mm -hmm. to make up the cost for... When I Jackson somehow they ended up owning the film. Weird. I'm not really sure how it worked. Yeah. Because when you watch the Criterion DVD, it's a Universal uh, through, license through Universal. Huh. But they got the negatives and stuff to restore it from Paramount. So they still ha like Universal didn't even know they owned it <laughs> when uh, Scorsese and Spielberg got together to mm -hmm. restore it with the Film Foundation. All this was sort of worked out. 
Steve Spielberg called me. He said, Marty, did you see this new DVD of One-Eyed Jack? I said, there was this new one out? I said, because there's been some very bad copies, because this is the worst. And it was uh, uh, German subtitles. The image was, was uh, absolutely appalling. And he said, we've got to do something. Why can't this thing be restored? So I called up Paramount, we, uh, Margaret Bodie and I, and Paramount no longer owned the rights. I, when it, something falls into public domain, I don't quite understand that, but it was out there, like the third man had fallen into public domain. Anybody could see a copy of it, and it was terrible until it was finally restored. But in any event, we were able to get from Paramount the permission. First of all, we had to find out where the negative was, and I believe, or who owned the rights. Turns out Universal owns the rights. I don't know how that happened, but that's what that is. Uh, it could be the production company or whatever. And then we had to get the permission, I believe, from Paramount, who apparently, I may be wrong on this, but apparently had uh, uh, the original VistaVision negatives. Um, and they were able to do that, and we worked for about a year on this. And the five films that Brando made for Universal to offset the cost were uh, The Ugly American, Bedtime Story, The Appaloosa, A Countess from Hong Kong, and The Night of the Following Day, none of which made any money. I've never heard of any yeah. of them. <laughs> Countess from Hong Kong, directed by Charlie Chaplin. I think his last oh, film as director. Yeah. Weird. Yeah, Brando and Sophia Loren. And anyways, like I said, Spielberg and Scorsese like saw the you know what was going on with the film, terrible quality, mm-hmm. public domain, and they're like, we got to do something about yeah. this. So they got together with the Film Foundation, restored it. That's the version you can see on Criterion now, which is, I recommend the version mm-hmm. to watch. It's beautiful. Yeah, it looks great. And uh, just a little fun fact, mm-hmm. while he was filming, uh, Brando received visits from Jacques Tati and the Soviet deputy pr- uh, uh, premier. I think I've seen pictures of Tati yeah. on the set. Yeah, there are a lot of pictures of him on the set you'll find yeah. on the internet. Yeah. Why? I don't know. I guess he was just in huh. Northern California and wanted to see Brando. That's cool. Yeah. So that's kind of funny. That's... I want to see a Tati Western now. That sounds delightful. <laughs> that would be delightful. Yeah. So this is the one and only Brando-directed film. Yes, he never career. never tried it again. Never tried it or was never allowed to, do we think? <laughs> well, Given the cost, uh... <laughs> the... the it may Production have been mutual. Runs. Yeah, yeah, it may have been mutual. Well, but as, interesting. Yeah. I mean, as difficult as he is, and of course in the 60s when his career starts to go downhill, yeah. you know, then the problems are no longer acceptable. Mm. The attitude on set right. is no longer, you know, worth it. And Paramount famously did not want him to play uh, Don Corleone in The Godfather. Mm-hmm. You know, they fought that. He, had, like, he had to prove himself, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. So as we've teased, I think the two of us have slightly different feelings about the movie. Yeah. Um, I will say there are a few things that I liked about it. Uh, one of which was the setting, which we sort of touched on uh-huh. in in the Monterey area of California. You really don't see a lot of beach westerns, and I feel like that should be a thing because <laughs> it's the most western you can get. It's, it's true. The final frontier. <laughs> it's as far west as you yeah, can go. Yeah, before you hit like fish. <laughs> And, I mean, maybe Hawaii, but other than that, I think it's really cool. And it, it sets up a great landscape mm-hmm. just visually mm-hmm. um, to see, like, the horses riding along there and, and just, like, an overlooked part of Western history in films, for yes, sure. Yes, yes. And also allows a lot of culture from the Mexicans in California, mm-hmm. the, the, the Chinese in California, all of that. Yeah. Yeah, the Mexican influence is very strong in this film, and I really like that. I like that aspect. Well, it. that was another one of my likes, oh, yeah. <laughs> was, was that aspect of it. Um, the not providing subtitles for the Spanish, which yes. is something you don't see a whole lot of. That There's just native Spanish speakers right. and no you'll see English that, subtitles. You'll see that like in Treasure of Sierra Madre, the scene where uh, Luisa tells her mother that yeah. she's pregnant. Yeah. That's a great It plays out for minutes all in Spanish. And I think there's a bonus if you do know Spanish. Like, I, I have dabbled in Spanish. <laughs> and I thought I picked up a line where, in this scene, Luisa was telling her mother, I think the line translated to, I was believing in a lie. Which is a great mm. bit of dialogue that you can pick up on just sort of as an extra oh, bit, is, yeah. if you know. But everything, like even the, the, the wardrobe, like Brando's wardrobe, and, and mm-hmm. there's lots of sombreros, the outfits and are really like very Spanish-influenced, and Brando's like a dandy in this movie. He's yeah. got the scarves and the little, the little short jackets, and uh, yeah. I really like his wardrobe, even though it's it's borderline ridiculous. Yeah, but. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's pretty cool. And sort of 
along the, those lines of like the realism present in the film i do love all the character actors i think they yeah. add a, a degree of realism ben johnson ben johnson's amazing yeah slim pickens yeah. sure all, all <laughs> of them and i think they just add a real depth which leads me into my main <laughs> <laughs> your main uh, critique critique that i just don't buy uh marlon brando and carl malden as gritty cowboy characters yeah they read so new york to me <laughs> they read so actory to me like yeah. they're fantastic actors but i I just always know they're acting. Yeah. And I know their background and where they come from. And I just don't feel the same way about them as I do about like Ben Johnson, for example, and seeing them in juxtaposition with each other, like with Marlon in a scene with Ben Johnson. I'm just like, this is what you want to be. And you're not it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, it's a fair point. I mean, I'm not bothered by them. I like them both in the movie. Um, I like Brando, but they don't read cowboy like those other two guys do and that's... they don't read outlaw to me mm. not not even brando he's the outlaw bad boy of the 50s <laughs> but he's like a motorcycle bad boy yeah. like a leather jacket yeah yeah that's fair it's a fair point yeah um and and for me i just can never get past that in mm, this movie yeah it's sort of the thing that's always front and center for me and i can't look past it yeah they don't read western in the way that other leading men do i probably like john wayne or clint eastwood or somebody even though they're not like Ben Johnson or Slim right. Pickens. They're not that Western, but... But they're less city-fied. Yes. They feel more of the uh, the Midwest. Even though Brando's from Nebraska. I mean, so, but, you know, I get your point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then even Malden made more Westerns. He's yeah. he's one of the main bad guys in Nevada Smith. Um, he's in Cheyenne Autumn. And but there's the a number train. of those characters in, in other Westerns that sort of get in the way for me. Okay. And keep me from liking well, a movie. That's fair. Going into that scene we mentioned where they the two characters re-meet for the first time yeah, after yeah. Brando comes back from prison. And as you say, you know, one character is has been lying the whole movie. That's Brando. Right. And this other character doesn't want to admit to the truth right. in, in the final product. Right. That aspect of Brando's character actually did bother me. Oh. <laughs> in that he's supposed to be the hero, but from step one... He's lying. So so at what point am I to believe him? At what point am I to believe that he's not deceiving any character? I feel like his character progression is supposed to be that we love him and we believe him by the end. But I'm never... I never felt comfortable doing that because he's been so deceptive. It's true. I'll give you that. He has so many reverses at the end yeah. of what... Oh, he, he's in love with her. He's not in love with her. He's No, this time he's really true. It doesn't really... It's not very believable. Yeah. I don't believe that they would have stayed together two miles beyond riding out of town. I feel like he would have reverted to his old way. So I don't think... The movie wants you to think he's heroic mm -hmm. and changed his way, but... I'm not sure Brando intended that, but it's it's muddled, so it's hard to know. Right. Yeah. I just always felt that he was a liar and deceptive. Yeah. I mean, while you were saying that, I was just shaking my head for the <laughs> listener. Just like, no, he's not in a real romance. He's right. going to do this girl wrong. He's not going to be a good guy. And I'm sure that's the studio wanting Brando to be redeemed at the end. Yeah. I wonder if Brando, in a Brando's original version, if he was just a liar the whole time. Like, you know, I mean, that makes sense for what he's set up in the movie. But for what me, there's, there's, there's not even a, a glimmer oh, of, a, of a goodness to him. Because he's just sort of living a lie the entire time. Yeah. This makes me, uh, bring, brings to mind the idea that this movie, I feel like, is kind of a bridge between the Hollywood Western and the Spaghetti Western. And that his character is just self-involved and, and just interested only in his well-being, his own benefit. And I completely agree with you on that point. That was exactly my thought coming out of the movie the first time I saw it. That it was this bridge between the traditional Western and the Spaghetti Western. And I think where that is a point that you admire the film, that is the point that I dislike the mm. film. Because it feels stuck between those two. It's mm. neither fish nor fowl. It's not quite the spaghetti western. Mm. It's not quite the traditional western. And just borrows qualities from both without being its own thing. Like, it, like it is progressive in a lot of ways that I will respect. Mm -hmm. And it does lead us to the spaghetti western. But on its own, I can't quite get on board with it. Interesting. Okay. I've always been very fond of this film. I, I like it tremendously. It's, I granted it gets a little long. It drags a little bit. It's muddled, and that's due to its post production problems. And probably, who knows? Even if Brando's cut would yeah. would make it that much better, I don't know. But 
there is so much that I do like about yeah. it. It's it's a favorite. It's not, you know, a great great western, but it's 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 a movie I like and I, I will revisit again. I will say that the poster for it said it was the motion picture that starts its own tradition of greatness. <laughs> so that's what it thought it was, yeah. or the studio or the thought marketing it was. Department yeah. Did, yeah. <laughs> um, whether it is is up for debate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But if you're going to watch it, watch the Criterion version. Yeah. Because otherwise you're getting just a muddled mess, yeah. I think. Yeah. If you have a poor print, it could be hard to it's, watch. Yeah, it can make the movie. Yeah. yeah, it can hurt the film. Touching on what you were saying of, of the film dragging a bit, the part that I always get dragged down on is the part where Rio is recovering from his wounds. Yeah, yeah. For any other movie, I feel like that would be a cool montage yeah. where we get little bits of what he's doing in the the recovery period. I mean, almost it's the training sequence. It's, right. you know, the one where the guy's like building up for the fight he's about to go to. It's almost like we're seeing his recovery in real time, people. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it really drags up. Well, imagine if they had kept in the romance with him and the, oh and the, the woman at the village. I mean, it would have been Maybe it would have mixed it up well, a little possibly. bit. and. But, like, there's a part where Ben Johnson's character is, like, complaining about all the waiting around. Right. And that is exactly how yeah. I, f I think the audience feels, yeah. if I can speak for the audience. Six weeks in this puke hole and listen to him. That ending ain't no better. How's the hand, Rio? Oh, it's coming. Oh, real? I've been wondering if we ought to lay around here anymore. Tell me different, Bob. I've been thinking a lot about all that kale waiting in the bank. How about the different, Bob? I'll tell you what we're gonna do. We're all gonna lay for that sheriff outside his house some sunup. Cut him down with scatter guns and then take that bank. That's not my style, Bob. It ain't, huh? Well, maybe you better change it, because your style seems a touch slow to me. I mean, there's a similar thing, like in A Fistful of Dollars, Eastwood, he's beaten to a pole, mm -hmm. and then he has to go and hide and recover. And that doesn't take long at all. Yeah. I and mean, they get right to it. Right. You know, he, it's it's a couple of quick dissolves and he's back in shape. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. It's an interesting interlude, but I would yeah. cut it down to a quick five. Yeah, yeah. It goes on too long. <laughs> yeah. For sure. And then you have the whole thing where he's in jail then. And, mm -hmm. and you know. and Those are kind of fun little Those scenes, are great though. scenes. Yeah. I like those scenes, but it just makes, it adds another, sure. you know, step to the movie. Which, I mean, maybe... I mean, you, you've read more about it than I have. Maybe some of these scenes are improvised and just Possibly. sort of a reason for being. <laughs> <laughs> like, a, something to shoot because we have to shoot well, something. Well, I mean, I think I love those scenes in the jail between him and, yeah. and Slim Pickens. I think those are great yeah. uh, and well worth it. So, But it's just, I think, you're, you're like you said, you're dragged through that sequence of the fishing village. So you're just kind of, mm -hmm. you're almost ready for the movie to be over yeah. at that point. Yeah. Then my, my final point that I would criticize it on is uh -huh. is is a like and a dislike. I like the score, the uh -huh. musical score of uh -huh. it. I think they rely on it too much. Hmm. I think it's a little bit telling you how to feel. Yeah, I remember it you saying that. Yeah. It's a bit just overused, overplayed. Yeah, it's a it's a heavy score throughout. Hugo Friedhofer uh, did the score a um, long time ago. Nice to listen to, just... Yeah kind of takes over the film a bit it's true I, there's a lot of things i like in this movie um i think there's a lot of great dialogue very great quotable dialogue that's different than you hear in other westerns and i'm going to attribute that to like ben johnson and mm. slim pickens probably mm -hmm. i mean I, they probably just had these little weird phrases that yeah. they knew i don't care what's happening to romeo I gotta get down and do something do something not this horse enough shotgun down there to start a war Besides, it might help him to get rid of some of that snot nose. I think the opening bank robbery is well done, where you open on Brando sitting mm -hmm. on the bar eating a yeah. banana, and then they pull back and reveal what's happening. It's um, iconic, yeah. Yeah. I think the scene when they're uh, in the, at the cantina after they've robbed the bank, 
and the Rurales come in. I think that's really well done. Rudolfo Acosta is the Rurale captain, pushes the door open with his pistol, and the door is open slowly. It's a low-angle shot, and they come in. Mm. It's very moody and very well done, I think. The scene on the, the hill where there's a sandstorm and they're surrounded mm-hmm. is cool. The the scene we talked about with on the porch when Dad yeah. and Rio meet for the first time. The shootout in the saloon where Rio kills Timothy Carey's character is, is well done. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that saloon set is very different than what you usually see. It's got the tile floors. The art director, the production designer of the film jay mcmillan johnson his most famous set is the rear window set oh. so he designed that whole set so he's yeah. <laughs> maybe the most famous set ever <laughs> yeah so yeah. he's that's that's pretty top wow. talent you got there the whipping scene i think is great mm-hmm. it's very brutal and i guess yeah. and that's also leading toward the spaghetti western i think it is and where he you breaks see more his hand and yeah graphic the violence graphic violence of it. yeah and, and the violence sort of for the sake of violence in a way Mm-hmm. Um, like the injured hand thing you'd seen before in Man from Laramie when Jimmy Stewart gets mm-hmm. his hand shot, but like Django doubles it when <laughs> Takes they, it when to they the yeah, yeah they trample horses over both right. his hands and you know that kind of thing. Um, and incident in that scene, Brando when Brando spits in Carl's Malden's face, Malden had no idea that was coming. Oh, wow. Yeah, so <laughs> that's a fun thing to have. Going back to the violence, I I wonder if that's more just a sign of the times changing of entering a very violent world in a very violent America and sort of that revealing itself. Yeah. Could it just be the natural progression of films at that point? Yeah. Right. Um, So if we want to quickly jump into talking about the actors, we won't go into too much stuff about Marlon Brando just because he's such a public figure and probably most people are aware of him and his story. (laughs) And if you don't know who he is, you need to go find out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, In relation to this film though, um, I think it's worth noting that he had an affair with Katie Hirado for uh, many years, starting in 1952 when they met while uh, he was filming Viva Zapata in Mexico. Um, At the time, he was also in relationships with Movita Castaneda uh, and Rita Moreno, which Katie knew about, but she thought it wasn't any harm as I didn't plan to marry him. (laughs) (laughs) I guess Brando has a type. Yeah. (laughs) But it's just sort of fascinating that, that they is. could carry it on for this for long, working together. I had no idea. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> That's funny. Yeah. Um, and then just another sort of weird fact about him is that he has uh, several patents for methods of tensioning drum heads. <laughs> really? Wow. I guess he had some free time. He had, uh, he had yeah, and free time dabbled, between takes. Yeah. yeah <laughs> in inventing uh, drum-related That's gear. That's funny. Yeah. Uh, moving on to Katie Hirado herself... Um, she, early in her life, sought work as a bullfight critic to help support her family in addition to her acting. She was spotted by Bud Bedecker and John Wayne at a bullfight, though neither knew she was an actress. And um, Bedecker cast her in Bullfighter and the Lady, and then she had an affair with him. Wow. Also. Wow. <laughs> so she might have gotten around as much as Marlon Brando. Sounds like it. At first, she learned her lines phonetically, and then she ended up learning English for High Noon in mm-hmm. 1952. Uh, she was the first Latin American to compete for the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress for Broken Lance in 1954. Dolores Del Rio was originally going to play that part, but was refused permission to work in the United States because she was accused of being a communist, communist sympathizer. Mm, wow. Uh, the studio originally thought Gerardo was too young for the role, but were impressed by her screen tests. And then she also... Had a relationship with Louis L'Amour. Really? I didn't know that. (laughs) So most of your famous Western (laughs) figures, possibly Katie Harado had an affair with. And she was married to Ernest Borgnine for a few years. Yeah. Late 50s to early 60s, probably while she was having an affair with Brando. I don't think she really had much of a type other than white guys. (laughs) Showbiz types. Yeah. Yeah, she was, uh, she's also in a lot of other Westerns, uh, Arrowhead, Badlanders with Borgnine, uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Um, I really do like her as an actress. I do too. She's really good. Yeah. Uh, and she's beautiful. Yes, yeah, she is. Yeah. And she's always solid in the movie. Mm-hmm. She's really good in this movie, I think. Yeah. It gives a great performance. And it's it's interesting to see an older actress have such a, a notable part. Yes. And actually, she's only 10 years older than the actress playing her daughter. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> but she plays it convincingly. Right. So. And she was also the uh, first uh, Latina actress to win a Golden Globe Award, mm. which she won for High Noon. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, going on to uh, Pina Payaser, who plays her mm-hmm. daughter, Luisa. Like I said, she was found in a large search done in Mexico. Um, her first acting role, barely spoke any English. She beat out her sister for the role, oh. <laughs> which really upset her and bothered her. She felt guilty about mm. it. Yeah. Yeah, I did want to talk about her a minute. Yeah. Earlier when you mentioned her, you said you know she required a lot of like training because right. she was so new. She didn't speak the language. 
I I think she's another person that adds some realism to it yes. in her mm. naivete and in, in acting. It's sort of a fresh look at at someone who's it, not yeah. She doesn't feel like a trained Hollywood actress pretending to be a young and naive. Yeah. Yeah. She feels like she fits in the world. Right. Yeah. She was very homesick during filming and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and that became exasperated by it going on for six months. Sadly, uh, she committed suicide in 1964 mm -hmm. at the age of 30. So mm -hmm. she must have uh, had a troubled life. Yeah. Yeah. wonder um, what what might have happened. Yeah, I know. With her. Yeah. If her career had gone some other direction. I don't know. Other cast members, as we mentioned, Ben Johnson, great in this movie. He was a former rodeo cowboy, became a stuntman, got seen by John Ford, put in Ford movies, um, you know, and the rest was, yeah. he won the Oscar for uh, Last Picture Show. Which he wouldn't have if he had retired after yes. this movie. <laughs> so thank goodness. <laughs> That's true. But Ben Johnson's interesting because he was both a member of Ford's stock company and then later Peckinpah's. Yeah. So he sort of bridges the gap between uh, his character in One-Eyed Jacks is definitely more toward the Peckinpah yeah. style. Peckinpah sort of used him as a more villainous character, the more underside, the dark uh, underside character. Yeah, yeah, for me, I mean, I, I kind of keep harping on this, but he really is a standout in this movie yeah. for me to the degree that I wish somehow he was the main character <laughs> or the main actor. Yeah, he really is good. I yeah. mean... And I'm sure that's working with Brando. I'm sure Brando yeah. got that performance from him. So, yeah. Um, but he, yeah, it's, it's real. I think like when I first saw the first time I saw this movie, I'd seen Ben Johnson in like later John Wayne mm -hmm. pictures. And when I saw this, I was like, wow, I was like, wow, Ben Johnson can really <laughs> act. Like he's, this is yeah. different than anything I'd seen him before at that time. But yeah, this, yeah, he's really good. And Slim Pickens, another rodeo veteran, yeah. an authentic cowboy. Uh, he's great in it. He, um, who would go on to work with Kubrick. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, he would eventually work with Kubrick. Uh, I think Kubrick and Brando both cast him in mm. this. And then, uh, of course, he would be with Kubrick in yeah. Dr. Strangelove, famously. Uh, mm -hmm. One of the all-time famous scenes. Yeah. Hey, what about Major Kong? <laughs> uh, Pickens said about this room, Film. He said, it used to be that I was playing myself, but then Marlon Brando and Stanley Kubrick saw me in an old western I had made. They asked me to play a heavy. I'd always been a sympathetic character before, and I found you have to work at being a heavy. So hmm. Maybe this was the first time he was really challenged as an actor. But he's he's loathsome in this movie. Yeah. He's really despicable. And, yeah. And, yeah, he's great. Forgetting one thing, Mom. Yeah? What's that? Ain't hung yet. Yeah, but you will be, brother. You ain't getting no older than tomorrow. Oh, say. Let's don't forget about her. I'll be taking care of that before they cut you down. You got the spit. <laughs> I sure am, ain't I? <laughs> Timothy Carey? Yes. Should be in every movie. Yes. <laughs> He uh, cast by Kubrick. He had been in his previous two mm -hmm. films, The Killings, The Killing, and Paths of Glory. Right. Um, uh, Tony Carey was a very bad actor on this film, <laughs> not in terms of his performance, but on his on-the-set behavior. Uh. He uh, tried to get the actress uh, that he's abusing in the cantina scene to spend weekends at his hotel because she was supposed to be playing a prostitute at uh -oh. the film. <laughs> he caused... maybe he shouldn't be in every film. <laughs> film, I take it back. <laughs> <laughs> he caused countless delays. Uh, Brando asked him to do something to get a reaction out of the extras, mm -hmm. so he dropped his pants. <laughs> he tried to get the producer to double his salary. He just kept causing trouble, and eventually they fired him from the movie. Mm. But, yeah, he's a character. <laughs> but he's really good at it. Yeah. And he's good in pretty much anything yeah, he's he in. Yeah, he is. So, I don't know, maybe it's worth the it. The carry touch. Yes. <laughs> and he has the the unique film the world's greatest sinner that's right his acting directing magnus opus yes. magnum opus yes <laughs> if you can track that down uh definitely check it out i don't know that i recommend it but it's it's a curiosity yes yes it's worth seeing in once that, yes <laughs> in how bizarre it is yeah um who else larry duran who plays modesto which is brando's buddy mm -hmm. they escape from prison together he uh was a stuntman mostly acted occasionally he had met Brando on Viva Zapata and was his, his stand-in often. So they worked together for many years. And he brings kind of a nice natural yeah, performance to the film. 
Um, I agree. Yeah, he's not an actor you... I mean, I, I can't think of anything else, else I've seen him act in, really, off the top of my head. I know he did stunt work, I think, in Magnificent Seven and some other films like that. Sam Gilman, who plays uh, Ben Johnson's sidekick in the movie Harvey, he had started out as a cartoonist, worked for various com- companies in the golden age of comics prior to World War II. Mm. He worked at Timely Comics, would eventually become Marvel Comics. Mm. Um, after the war, he took up acting and met Brando and mm. and acted the rest of his life. And that's he knew Brando, and that's how he got cast mm. in the film. What else? Some other actors in the film, Elisha Cook Jr. shows up as a bank teller. He's always reliable. Yeah. Uh, Brando supposedly admired Shane quite a bit, and maybe huh. he cast him because of that. I don't know. But he had also had worked with Kubrick before, so maybe that's that, that connection is also a possibility. This is another train of thought, but it is so interesting how many filmmakers claim Shane as an influence I on know, him in some I know. Way. It was really an influential film yeah. to a lot of people. Everybody from like Warren Beatty to, you know, who knows. To Logan. I mean, yeah, the film Logan. That's true, yeah. yeah. Even showing clips from the movie. Right. Like, um, Ray Teal shows up as a bartender. He's he's in countless movies, usually playing some sort of slimy guy. He was the sheriff on Bonanza for years. Mm. He's in Best Years of Our Lives and lots of other movies. Um, Hank Warden shows up. Mm. Um, always great. Yes, always great. You know, from The Searchers and Red River and so forth. Uh, so that's like a lot of top talent for this movie. And a from, lot of your Ford regulars and your other Western yeah, regulars. Yeah, a lot of Western still regulars. Still getting work. Yes. <laughs> so great cast. A lot of great people behind the camera and mm-hmm. in a movie i think is really good uh you and i think so. has problems. <laughs> problems it does have problems it has the bones but i can pick at it yeah no you're 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 not wrong in your thank you your <laughs> your feelings but Justified. i yeah i do have a fondness for me i remember watching this for the first time with my dad uh, years ago, and he—it's a favorite of his. So it has that—that kind of—I have that connection with it as well. And there's sort of the allure of it not being that readily available in right. previous years. It being the only Brando-directed right, movie. Right. There, there is, there are interesting qualities about it that people should right. seek it out for. And and he didn't make very many westerns. I mean, you got right. the Appaloosa, Missouri Breaks, and that's pretty much it. I think. Yeah. yeah. Also, um, if you want to take a really deep dive into this movie and and just get all the behind-the-scenes details. I recommend reading um, the book A Million Feet of Film, The Making of One-Eyed Jacks by Toby Roan, who also does, uh, I think, a commentary on the on the Criterion DVD. But yeah, it's a, it's, I'd, I'd recommend that if you really want to mm. get the in-depth scoop on this movie. So that pretty much covers One-Eyed Jacks. I think we've discussed pretty much everything. Yeah. Um, so we'll be back soon with another podcast. It's always worth reminding, please rate, review, follow us on things, listen to our other episodes, and we'll keep making them for you. So that wraps it up for another episode of Film Frontier. Uh, so long from me, Felicity. And me, Clarence. And the spirit of Elisha Cook Jr. Nice. Adios. Bye. Jack called Rio Rode into Monterey He found his enemy Long worth wearing the star That fateful day The sheriff didn't trust The one-eyed Jack His soul was filled with hate So he set a trap For the one-eyed Jack With Louisa as his babe Beware of the one-eyed Jacks Especially if they're one One-eyed jacks are deadly And they never smile Never trust a one-eyed jack You can't ever tell By the one side that they show to you If their souls have gone to hell The blazing guns were set aside The one-eyed Jack was called The sheriff eyed his enemy He said, you know, I can't be bought The creaky jailhouse door slammed shut With Rio locked inside But the one-eyed Jack made his escape With Louisa by his side Beware of the one-eyed Jacks Especially if they're one One-eyed jacks are deadly And they never smile Never trust a one-eyed jack You can't ever tell
inside that they show to you if their souls have gone. 